Well, amen. Great worship this morning. Don't you agree? That was good stuff. Take you to the throne. Well, let's open up our Bibles uh, this morning. We want to turn to Matthew chapter 9. And the title of the message this morning is The Touch of Faith. You know, the Bible teaches, in fact, Jesus said, if you believe, all things are possible to those who believe. Well, when he told the man that, the man responded back, I do believe, help my unbelief. If we were to be honest with ourselves this morning, most of us would say we do believe God exists and we believe that he's there and he intervenes in our life on occasion, at least sometimes, but we really have struggles in our life in really believing God for something really great, believing God for answer to prayer. I preached a series of messages last fall called For Something More, and part of that was just getting beyond the mundane of at the average Christian life and have God do something really great in your life. The problem is it's tough sometimes as we struggle through life to really believe that God's going to intervene and do something really unusual and miraculous in our life. One of the things that we study as we're going through these miracles in this series of messages in Matthew, we discover that there's a common denominator, and that common denominator is faith. Now, I'm not going to stand up here and tell you this morning that without without exercising some sort of faith, God's not going to do anything in your life. I'm not going to strangle God that way. But we know that in this passage, at least, and in many, many, many miracles in the Gospels, faith is brought out. In fact, look back with me just a few moments in uh, Matthew chapter 8 and verse 2. It says, the leper says, and behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. That's faith. And then he, we look at verse 10, when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Remember when he was calming the storm, he got up, he said, peace be still, the, the storm was calmed, and he looked at his disciples and he asked them, where is your faith? And so over and over and over again, we see this exercise of really believing God. Now, how much faith is really enough? You know, somebody says, well, you know, if I really had great faith, if I had enough faith, things could happen really in my life. I just don't have enough faith. Well, how much is enough? That's a good question. And what is it anyway? I mean, how can we describe faith? Well, the Bible describes it in this way. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Well, that's one thing. It's assurance. That word assurance comes from the Greek word substance, the substance in your life, the foundational thing in your life. I have the assurance, the no-so that something's gonna happen before it happens. Now, many of you here today know that you're saved. You know that Jesus lives in your heart. It's called assurance of salvation. Well, at the same time we're assured of your salvation, we're assured that something's gonna happen in our life, like an answer to prayer, even before it happens. Well, that's just part of the definition of faith. That's the hope for faith, that that faith of the future. But notice, it's also the conviction of things not seen. And so not only do I believe that something, I have this great assurance of hope in my heart that something's going to happen in the future, but also there's a conviction here, a convincing of things that I don't see. I, I, I believe in God, even though I can't see him. I believe in spiritual beings, though I cannot see them. And then it goes on to say in verse three, by faith, we understand the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made of things that are visible. In other words, I just simply trust God at his word. Uh, He made the universe with the word of God. I trust his character. Faith sometimes has been referred to as taking God at his word. Now, if you look in the Bible, 
And certainly we want great faith. In fact, it tells us in the Bible how to grow it. It says, so faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. It's the word of God. You want more faith, you read the Bible. It tells you how to know God better and it tells you how to trust him more. The problem is we spend more time out in the world than we do in the word. I mean, that's everybody. You spend 16 hours a day, either working at your job, raising kids, going to school, you're doing something and you, you just don't sit here in the, reading the Bible 24 seven. And so what can we do? What can we look in the Bible and, and get through these struggles and have, a, have the touch of faith in our life? I'm reminding of the, reminded of the story of Dr. Charles Stanley, who was the pastor of First Baptist Church in Atlanta, Georgia. Early in his ministry, many people don't know this, but when First Atlanta, uh, really, Dr. Stanley in the early 70s first went to uh, First Baptist Church of Atlanta, it really was in turmoil. Uh, they were a, a church that really probably did not uh, honor the word of God as much as Charles Stanley does. And so when he began to preach the gospel, and you know, people started leaving the church and people started uh, being in an uproar. You heard the story about somebody coming up actually on the pulpit and, and hitting him in the face and all that's true. And he, you know, he brought in some new music. You know, and oh man, you don't wanna do that. But he brought, you know what new music he brought in? He was the first, it was the first orchestra south of the Mason-Dixon line. First one in the whole south. And they, they just thought that was heresy. And so he's coming through all this and he's just beaten down. And this little lady in the, in the church, in fact, I met her when I was an intern there. She's a little, little uh, lady and feisty. I mean, she's feisty. And uh, tell, you, tell you like it is, you know. And so she said, um, Dr. Stanley, you need to come over to my house for, for lunch. So he went over there and he showed her, she showed him a painting of Daniel in the lion's den. And if you know this painting, it's, uh, you know, the, the lions are circling around Daniel and they're salivating at the mouth and Daniel's praying. And so uh, looking up to heaven. And so she asked him, what do you notice about this painting? And he says, well, I see the lions, but what else do you notice? And he said, well, I noticed that Daniel's not looking at the lions. He's looking up to heaven. And she said, exactly. If you keep your eyes on Jesus, God's going to see you through this. And he said that changed his life, changed his whole ministry. And you can see what's happened in his life since. And so as we're looking at this, how do we have that kind of touch of faith? Well, in Matthew 9, we said that uh, G, uh, Matthew is writing this book as a bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament because his audience were, was a Jewish audience. That's very important for you to realize in this book, but also in this particular message that I'm preaching this morning. And so he was uh, bringing about a bridge to the new gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in doing this, he brings about now many, many miracles. And Jesus is now showing the Jewish audience who he was through the actions that he took in his life. And so as we look at this, I want us to look at a couple of things. First of all, I want us to look at the reasons we can believe God. You know, the why, why how can I believe God? How can I do that? Well, we're going to have two reasons, good reasons right here. Then we're going to be looking at two miracles that have four distinct things about faith and uh, exercising that faith uh, before the Lord. And so let's look at it. First of all, the reasons for faith, beginning in verse 14. The disciples came to Jesus. <clears throat> this is right after he healed the paralytic. Uh, Matthew was called now to be a disciple. We looked at that last week. Then the disciples of John <clears throat> came to him saying, why do we, this is John the Baptist, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? 
Now, this is not a message about fasting. Uh, I've done that before. I've preached on that before. Fasting is leaving something out of your diet in order to concentrate on prayer and sometimes for mourning. Now, in the New Testament, it was more for mourning uh, than it was for, for prayer, but they did it for both ways. Now, he says, and Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. Now, how in the world is that a reason for faith? The reason for faith is in this word bridegroom. We know that we can trust God because he loves us. Now, in the Old Testament, there is an imagery there of the bridegroom and the bride. The bridegroom was God himself. The bride was the nation of Israel. Now, all through the Old Testament, we find this illustration like a thread going throughout, throughout the Old Testament. In fact, there are times, like in the book of Hosea. Hosea was a prophet. Uh, he, he had a wife by the name of Gomer. I know all of you are gonna wanna run out and name your, your girl, child, Gomer. And so uh, uh, <clears throat> her name was Gomer and she played the harlot. And she was even uh, in the slave market at the end of her life. That's how bad it was. And this was an illustration. God used an illustration to say, Israel has played the harlot with me. I married her and she's gone a whoring, and that's what the King James says, after other gods. And so we find this imagery all throughout the Old Testament. Now in the New Testament, the Bible tells us that we are the bride of Christ. We can find that in the book of Ephesians, for example. We as a Christian a group of people that have trusted the gospel of Jesus Christ are now the bride of Jesus Christ and he being the bridegroom. Now, this is a very intimate thing. Now, some of you perhaps have been married for a long, long time. You've kind of gotten used to one another, that, that romance and, you know, just can't wait to get home kind of feeling. Maybe it's not there. You've kind of settled into life. That's not this. This is the bride and bridegroom as though they're newlyweds. That's the kind of relationship that we have with Jesus Christ, a newlywed relationship. Well, what kind of love do we find in this picture? We find a committed love. Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. He had a sense of duty, but there's a sense of intimacy as well. Now you can have a commitment in your life, in your marriage, that's just all about duty and it's off balance. I've gotta do it, I've gotta do it. I mean, after all, I've signed up for this, I made a commitment. On the other hand, the intimacy part, you can be intimate and love and love and love and have those, those feelings, but you, you never do what you really call to do in that marriage. All, both of them are off balance. Jesus loves us with an everlasting love and he proved it by dying on the cross for our sins. Well, then we find it's a sacrificial love. When you and I get married, it ought to be a, a sacrificial love dying to the selfishness of our life and joining together with our spouse to live an unselfish life, a sacrificial life. The Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. God was saying, look, there's, there's a sacrificial love here. There is a love that is completed. You know, kind of the old romantic movies, you know, you kind of, oh, you just complete me. Well, my wife and I have been married for 38 years and we can almost finish one another's sentences, you know, that kind of thing. And you know what I'm talking about. You know what other, your, your spouse is even thinking. You've completed one another. It's amazing to me how many people are attracted to opposites. Ever notice that? I mean, there's an extrovert, here's an introvert. 
you know, they're, uh, this person kind of dark complected and they're attracted to somebody with maybe a lighter complexion. Here's a person that is a, a morning person. And how would you even know this? But a morning person, there's an evening person. You know, you, you attracted to someone that's different from you. Well, here we find there's a completeness here because Jesus is the sinless one and he is attracted to us in, in this illustration. We're attracted to him as sinners being attracted to the sinless one and he has completed us. But then there's also a marriage is an exclusive love. We only worship one God. As we said all throughout the Old Testament, the Bible talks about Israel playing the harlot. Well, in the New Testament, in the gospel, there's a love here that not only completes us, but there's a love also here that's exclusive. We, we, don't, we don't go after other idols in our life. One of the first things I ask myself in, in my Christian experience is that when I'm not getting answers to prayer, I just ask myself, am I being faithful to God? In other words, am I putting other things ahead of him? Am I worshiping other idols? And so we find here a reason. We, we've said before, when we pray to God, when we want God to, to do something greater in our life, what do we ask? God, are you willing? And God, are you able? Here, he says, I am willing to do that. I love you. You are my bride. And I treat you as we're, we're newlyweds to that marriage. Well, also there's another reason. And that is he's powerful enough. Look with me in verse uh, 16. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch tears away from the garment and worse tear, a worse tear is made. That's pretty self-explanatory. If you sew something new, a new piece of cloth, an old piece of cloth, you wash it, it shrinks, it's gonna pull away. Uh, neither is new wine put into old wine skins because what happens? The wine begins to ferment and bursts the old wine skin. And the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed, but new wine is put into fresh wine skins. And so both are preserved. Now, what is he illustrating to this? Remember, again, he's looking to an Old Testament audience. He says, look, the Old Testament laws won't get you to heaven. Not only that, but he's specifically talking about the traditions and how the law has been applied to their life. He said, this is the old way. And you'll never put this new gospel into that old wine, wine skin because the gospel cannot be held back by some legalistic stuff, traditions. Now, traditions are good, and we like to remember things, you know, in the past. Uh, I don't know how many of you are on uh, social media, but I, I get these things every once in a while where it says, you know, if you can remember these 10 things, you're older than dirt, you know? And if you can remember all 12, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, you know, how many of you remember, uh, man, we had a lot of hands raised in this first hour. You know, how many of you remember uh, uh, Coca-Cola going for a nickel? Anybody here? Man, the whole, the whole place raised their hand the first hour. And then um, the, the wax, you know, the little Coke bottles of the wax, and it's got Kool-Aid in it, and you chew it up, there's Kool-Aid in it. How, anybody remember that? Oh, there's a few of you. Remember that. Okay, good. How many of you remember the Beverly Hillbillies? Maybe you at least seen them on the reruns, all right? And you've got this long list. You say, okay, I'm older than dirt. You know, what can I say? And we like to look back at the, at the nostalgia of life. You know, the traditions of life, and traditions can be very, very good. I know in, in our family, when our kids were growing up, we had some traditions around Christmas time. You know, we always had a Christmas Eve service. So we came to Christmas Eve service, and then we went home and ate dinner. Uh, you know, the nice turkey and ham and all that. 
And then the next morning, well, we would open up presents and run out to either the IHOP or Denny's because the only thing used to be open on Christmas. And we'd have breakfast. I mean, we did this for a long, long time. We had traditions. Those are good to remember. But when your traditions become more important, for example, if our traditions became more important than Christmas, if our traditions became more important than the things that were mattering about Christmas, then they'd be getting in the way. We call it traditionalism. And if our traditions get in the way of us reaching people for Jesus Christ, it's becoming traditionalism and it's an idol in our life. And he was saying, look, it's going to be hard for you as Old Testament believers to believe this. You are raised to obey the law and obeying the law is the only way to please God. Man, you just had to do that if you're going to try to get to heaven and all these other Old Testament laws. And then, and then the Pharisees throwing in all the traditions on top of that. You are raised that way. In fact, you can't even tell the difference between the traditions and the laws of the Old Testament sometimes. He says, this new gospel, this powerful gospel where I'm dying on the cross for the sins of the whole world will not fit into that wine scan. And so you and I realize that God has done something precious in our life. He's done something great in our life. In fact, it says, through whom we both have access in one spirit to the Father, meaning the Jews and the Gentiles. Before, we were uh, commonplace. We're commoners on the outside of the grace of God. Now, we as non-Jews are included in that. And he said that, that new wine will not fit into that old frame, that old wineskin. And so then he backs this up by showing us two miracles. And they just happen in life. Jesus is traveling along. He's teaching the people. And then here's what happens in verse 18. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler. Now, we know this ruler's name was Jairus because of the gospel of Mark, as Mark gets into more detail of the story. And he came and knelt before him and saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years <coughs> came up behind him and touched him, touched the fringe of his garment. And she said to herself, if, only, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. And Jesus turned, seeing her, said, take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. A great miracle. There's no question about it. But I want you to notice a couple of things about not only her faith, but also Jairus's faith as well. There was a desperation there. You know, part of the problem in God doing miracles in our life is that we just, we just don't need them. I was um, in India several years ago, and Rod Gilbert, who is a, a missionary, um, actually a national pastor that we support, uh, has tens of thousands of people saved every year, every year. But back in the embryonic state, state of that, I visited there and had the opportunity to, uh, to share my faith and to, uh, to, to preach there. And the, the preaching was very small, small little venues. We would get into this uh, slum area, and you can just imagine, you can't imagine, by the way, unless you really were there, um, the slum area that these people were staying in. They were just, sometimes they had blocks stacked up with a tarp over it. Sometimes they didn't have that much. The whole house was a tarp. But they were just squatting. They're squatting on government property. They're stealing the electricity and the, and the government thinks that's, that's fine. Go ahead and get it. Go ahead and take it. And so they've got all this stuff going on and it, the stench in these places is, is just unbelievable. 
So I'm walking into this place and everybody's kind of following us along. I mean, after all, you know, we're a couple of us there, Americans, uh, and, you know, very recognizable at this point. And so people are kind of following along and I didn't know whether it was good or bad because these could be dangerous places. We go into this house and I'm introduced to the, uh, the man of the house. In fact, it was so small, one of us would say, well, that's, that's about the size of my bedroom. But sometimes as many as 20 people slept in that room. And so there we are, and uh, I'm kind of backed up to a corner, and he says, uh, I want to introduce you to this guy. And so I met him, and he was, he was the man of the house. And he said he had a back problem so severe that it couldn't work. Now, that is a serious thing in India. Uh, when you and I can't work, we just get to work, workman's comp, disability. Uh, there's some kind of government thing that we can do. Maybe the church helps us out a little bit on the side. And so all these things are going on. And it's bad. It's really painful. It's really awful. It's bad. But we can live. Over there, if you don't work, you just don't live. They, work, they live on a dollar and a quarter. Back then, they lived on a dollar and a quarter of American money, if, you know, if you put it that way, a um, dollar and a quarter a day. If you don't work, there's no bread on the table. He wasn't working. That whole area and all of his friends were very concerned. He was not a believer. He was a Hindu in his faith. Rod came along, laid hands on him, prayed for him, and he was healed. And he was able to go back to work the very next day. Well, that caused such a revival in that area that all these people had come to know Christ. And they were gathered in that house and some of their guests that have never heard the gospel. And I was able to preach there. And we had, I think, six people saved in that little house. But you see, they were desperate. We have all the, the things that we depend on and we just aren't desperate enough. Notice what has happened here. In fact, let me read something to you out of the gospel of Mark because Mark really elaborates on this story a little bit more to help us to really understand where this woman was. And there was a woman, he says, who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And so if you can just imagine, we talked about the leper a few weeks ago and how he was ostracized for being a leper and nobody could touch him. Well, she was unclean as well. Ceremonially unclean. She could not go to the temple. She could not hang out with anybody else. She was alone. She was by herself. And she had suffered much under many physicians, had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. You know, this speaks to me in a way where we've gone with our needs to the world over and over and over and again, and the world's way is just not helping us. So this, this woman is not only desperate physically, but she's desperate emotionally and spiritually as well. In fact, some of the, the, uh, the money that she spent on was things like, in fact, here's some of the cures for back in this New Testament time, uh, gra e eating grasshopper eggs. How about this? Put a tooth of a fox and hang it all around your neck and that'll heal you. Or maybe eat the fingernail of someone who has been hung. That was another remedy. Sound like my healthcare plan, you know, what can I say? But anyway, <laughs> they, she was just sick of all these cures. She spent all of her money. And so she was desperate for God to do something in her life. We often don't, we just don't trust God until there's some desperation in our life. We see that she was desperate. We see that Jairus was also desperate as well. But what about the direction of faith? I asked you a few minutes ago, how much faith is enough? How much faith did they have? It looked like to me that Jairus had a lot of faith. But what about this woman? Notice it says, I'm just going to read Mark again. 
She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in a crowd and touched his garment. And if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately she was made well. Then Jesus goes on to say, power has gone out of me. Well, notice it says she heard about Jesus. She had knowledge of it. She just didn't come out of the blue and said, you know, this guy's being followed by a lot of people. I bet you he could heal me. And she reaches out and she touches the hem of the garment. She was healed. No, she had heard all about Jesus. She did not have blind faith. Her faith was not blind. It, it wasn't where she had to, to believe in some sort of vacuum. For example, um, you're in a jungle and you have to cross over a bridge in order to get home. And you say, well, I just don't have the courage to do that. I mean, that, that bridge may collapse. It doesn't look really as sturdy as everybody says it is. Well, so the first person, maybe the leader of the group, decides, hey, I'll go first. He goes, man, it looked like to me he could run across there. No problem. It was strong. The next person goes across and the next person goes across. Now it's your turn. I, I just don't think I can make it. Well, you think you're heavier than anybody? No, I'm, I'm probably not as heavy as that last guy. Well, you, you think it's going to collect? No, I, I just don't know. He could. It could not work for me. No, it takes a matter of a little bit of faith to go out on that bridge. There's no question. But there are people that have gone before you. Now, you and I live in a world today where we don't see as many miracles as the people in the New Testament times or maybe the people in India and China and some of the third world countries. But we have things called a testimony, a witness, a story. This afternoon, I want to invite anyone who has not uh, attended before. We'd love to have you this afternoon on our uh, dinner with a pastor where I'm sharing my story. But you have this story and this, and this person was saved out of, of this. And this is a story uh, of this guy. And it's totally different from this one over here coming to the gospel. So you and I have stories. We have testimonies by the hundreds of people who've already crossed the bridge. And so maybe it doesn't take a lot of faith. Maybe it just takes a little faith but it's not blind faith. You see, it's the object of the faith, not the amount. All of us have faith. You may have faith in yourself. You may have faith in your job, your, the amount of money that you have, your bank account, savings account. It's like a lordship issue. We choose our object of what we believe in, our faith. Then that thing begins to control us because we place all of our confidence into that thing that we've chosen to help us. So how much? What about this quantity of faith? She had a little bit, but direction more important than quantity, the object of the faith. Now, I'll, I'll do this again as far as an illustration, kind of like the same one with the bridge, only a little different. These people, three guys getting chased by a, a polar bear. And they're in the ice and they're in the snow and they come to the, the end where there's nothing but a lake and it's frozen over. And they look behind us and they can hear the bear coming through the woods. So they have a choice. The first guy's thinking to himself, you know, I, it looks great to me. Man, it's frozen out here. I don't weigh but 135 pounds. I know it's going to hold me. And he jumps out on the lake and it holds him. The next guy's thinking, well, if it'll hold him, I believe it'll hold me. I weigh about 175, 180 pounds. And so he jumps out, no cracks at all. It holds him. The third guy says, I just don't think it'll hold me. 
Man, I'm close to 300 pounds. There's no way that ice is going to hold me. I'm going to crack it and I'm going to drag everybody else down with me. Then he hears the roar of the bear getting real close. And he jumps out on the ice. And the ice turns out to be about a foot thick, holds him up real well. Now, let me ask you this. Which one, which one of these three men were saved? All three. The first one said, I really believe it. The second one says, I, I pretty much believe it. The third one says, I don't really don't believe it at all. All three of them jumped. All three of them were saved. George Mueller once said, great, small faith, he says, little faith in a sturdy bridge will get you over the water. But great faith in a weak bridge will get you in the water. You see, it's not a matter of how much you believe. And I believe, even though our faith can increase, even though we are rewarded for our faith, Hebrews eleven six 6 says that, that he is rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Nevertheless, it's the object of our faith. So the question is, what are you placing your faith in? Are you face, putting your, your faith in yourself? And God is just sort of a, back, you know, a backstop just in case it doesn't work out. You're placing your faith in your career, your money your family to do what needs to be done in your life? Or are you really placing your faith in the Lord? Well, we see there's a desperation. Secondly, there's a direction. And third, there's gotta be a determination. She risked ridicule. Now you can imagine maybe what's going on in her life right now. She's 12 years, been bleeding, weak. Now you know she has to be weak. And yet she's trying to fight her way through the crowd. Maybe she grabs at his at his garment one time and she misses and she's pushed away and everybody else is trying to get closer to Jesus. You know, I mean, we're, we're selfish creatures and we sometimes do that. Get closer and closer and closer, you know. And she reaches again, she misses. Finally, one last time, she begins to spread the people out and squeeze in and go underneath and, and lunges and finally grabs the hem of the garment the Bible says power goes out of him and he knows someone has touched him. Determination. Why doesn't God just, you say, well, why, why don't God just give, give me what I need right off the bat? Well, let me ask you this. How bad do you want it? Sometimes we don't quit for lack of faith. We quit because we don't have perseverance. We quit praying because we don't want it badly enough. Now, you've been praying for your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister. You've been praying for your kids for a long time. But how often do you pray? How much do you pray? Do you fast and ever fast and pray? How bad do you want it? And when, when we wait, God is moving all kinds of things around. In fact, he's working in your story, but he's working in someone else's story as well. And he's bringing them around in this person's story and they're part of your story. And he's bringing them around and he's causing patience to be built up in your heart and desire to be built in your heart rather than just taking something for granted. It'll be something when it happens that you'll remember for the rest of your life because you wanted it so badly. You were desperate, but you also determined but I want you to notice something lastly, because Jesus said, or rather the writer of Hebrews said in 11.6, he says, it's impossible to please God without faith. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is rewarded for those who seek him. He rewards. 
There's nothing wrong with thinking about it. He rewards with answer to prayer. He rewards with blessings in life. Look at what happened here. I want you to see in the celebration of faith in these last few verses, I want you to see that there's a pointing here of celebration of the cross and a celebration of the resurrection. In verse 22, Jesus turned and seeing her said, take heart, my daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. Now in the gospel of Mark, we read just a few moments ago where it said, power has gone out of me. Who touched me? And the disciples said, well, what do you mean, Lord, who touched you? Everybody's touching you. We can, we can barely get by here. It's just like body to body, moving along down the street. Everybody's touching you. We, we don't know. What do you mean somebody touched No, but someone, as though Jesus was saying, yeah, but someone touched me and meant it. He could tell the difference between the frivolous follower and the person who was desperately in need of something that reached out to him by faith. Somebody touched me and really meant it in their life. I want you to notice something here. This was done publicly. Jesus turned around and I imagine they, they began to give him a little room. And he said, who touched me? Hundreds of people were gathered around. Hundreds. I mean, there's no telling how many people were there watching this. It was public. Just like the cross was public. And when Jesus died on the cross, power went out of him. You see, when you love someone, it does take a sacrifice. And every time Jesus performed a miracle, you don't see him standing up like maybe a superhero and just making a big deal out of it so much so that spending a lot of energy. In fact, he got up out of the boat and said, peace be still and, and the calm and the storm was just calmed. But what we don't realize is every time virtue, power goes out of him when he sacrifices and when he sacrificed for you and I on the cross, a supreme sacrifice, power went out of him, energy went out of him, his life went out of him for you and for me. We celebrate the Lord's Supper today. It's the bread that represents his body that was broken for us. And the cup representing the blood that was, was shed for us. And just like the issue with the woman with the issue of blood for 12 years and bleeding and weak and near the point of death, Jesus spent all of his blood for you and I in order to pay for our sins. But then we find a picture of the resurrection. It says, he said to them in verse 23, and when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion. Now, what was this all about? Well, that's what they did. They, they, that's how they mourned. In fact, if you didn't have enough flute players, and enough mourners, you went out and hired them. You know, some of the senior adults in the first hour got really excited about maybe a new job, you know, part-time job in retirement, new website. But here's what was happening in their life. And he said to them, he said to them, when the crowd had been outside, he went in and took her by the hand. The girl arose. Now, the first time someone reached out and touched Jesus, this time he reaches out and touches someone. Same result. Someone was healed. A miracle occurred in their life. Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue, swallowed his pride. Can you imagine being a ruler of the synagogue and the Pharisees looking at you and saying, what are you doing, you traitor? Sadducees looking at him and saying, you traitor. 
And you're following along with this, 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 uh, this heretic. You know he's of the devil. And you're following along with him. He was desperate. He says, look, I want your approval. And I'd like to remain a Pharisee or a Sadducee, whatever he was. I'd like to remain in the synagogue. I like my job, but I love my daughter a whole lot more. And Jesus is the only answer for her. I've seen what he can do. And what he's done for others, he can do for my daughter. And a great miracle occurred in his life. But notice in this story, in the Gospel of Mark and Luke, it says that he, he told everybody, leave the room. There were only three disciples in the room with him. And a couple of other people. Jairus and probably his wife. Very private. And he reached down and she rose from the dead. A picture of what was to come. When Jesus died on the cross, he was put in a tomb. The Bible says the next day there wasn't hundreds there witnessing that. There were two ladies that went to the tomb. And they had to still be going through great grief in their life. Great hurt in their life. They were still shocked at the Savior, their Savior, their Lord, the one they were following, the one they left everything to follow, had died. And maybe like a, like a, almost like a zombie walking to the grave carrying all the stuff that would, would cause them to be able to anoint him for burial. There's an earthquake and the Bible says the tomb was open. They walk in and he's gone. He's just gone. What is happening here? And the angel came to them and showed them, shared with them the promise. But it was private. Hundreds later would see it. But here we find this picture, this picture of desperation, this picture of a miracle, one touch, and they were made whole. Faith in these passages was always desperate, always determined, always directed in its object toward God. Now I want to ask you something this morning. God, let me just say, God wants to do something more in your life than you ever dreamed of before. And that's not positive thinking stuff. God wants to intervene in your life and do something great. Is there anything there that's stopping that from happening? Are you really desperate enough for that to happen? Pam and I went to see a movie uh, the other day called Run the Race. And uh, it's a Christian movie. And Tim Tebow was the, the executive producer of that. Some of you maybe have already seen it. It's a good movie. But it's a story about two brothers who had really had some bad stuff dealt in life. Their mother died of cancer. Their dad became an alcoholic and he left them. So they're too much, pretty much on their own. And one of them, both of them were football players. One of them, as we open up the movie, had already had a brain injury in football. He's doing okay. But the other one was a football hero hoping to get a scholarship and get them out of their town. And because of an incident, the ACL was torn. And his football career looked like it was over. He goes back home because now his brother's having seizures and he's on, looks like his deathbed. He goes home to get his brother's Bible and some other things and he collapses on the floor. And by the way, he's been talking to God the whole movie. He didn't believe in God, but he'd been talking to him. Ever notice that? You know, so many people, I don't believe, God, I don't believe in you. What are you talking to him for? You know, all the, all the way through the movie, he's talking to him. But now he's desperate. 
He slumps on the floor and he says, Lord, I'm finished running. I'm done. I'm done. And he says this. As he cried, he said, I need your help. Do you need his help this morning? Are you end of your rope? The way the lady was at the end of all the world's answers for her. I need your help. God wants to do something in your life. He wants to do something great. What's stopping it? Maybe you're here this morning. And you say, well, I know what's stopping me. I know that I'm, I'm not a believer. I'm not a Christian. I'm not born again, as they said. I, I'm not saved, however you want to put it. Jesus is not my Lord. I'm not following him. And this morning, that's your miracle. The greatest miracle of all that could ever happen to you is for Jesus Christ to come and to live inside your heart. That inner core, that causal core of your very being. Would you allow him to do that today? Would you call on him? The Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You can do that today. With heads bowed and eyes closed. I'm going to encourage you this morning to pray this prayer with me silently. As I pray aloud, if you mean the prayer, I believe that Jesus will come to live inside your heart. Pray with me. Lord God, I come to you with an open heart, with a desperate heart, with a determined heart to know you. I believe that you died on the cross for me. I believe that you paid for my sins. And I want to receive that gift. I want to receive you into my heart. So I ask you to come in. Forgive me of all my sins. Make me the person that you want me to be. Do the work in my life that I so desperately need. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at crosslifechurch.com.